Welcome to the Twisted Mirror. Just a heads up, um, on this intro, the sound quality isn't going to be very great because um, I wanted to get this episode out to you guys as quickly as possible, and I always record the intro at the end, and it just so happens I have a kitchen renovation going on, so there's lots of hammers and all that kind of stuff happening, and then it rains about three times a year here, and it also happens to be windy and rainy outside, so I'm literally in my car recording this intro, uh, but the rest of the show will be normal. Um, just a few quick things before we get started. Make sure you listen to part one of this episode of The Ones You Love, or you will be just as lost and confused as the protagonist of this story. Also, thank you for all the new reviews. Uh, I actually hit the top fiction charts in Apple, which is really exciting at four episodes in. I almost missed it because I didn't even think to look for it. Uh, I assumed like a parade would come down my street or something when that happened, or at the very least, a secret podcast society would show up at my door and hand me some sort of cloak and dagger. Um, but alas, you just have to kind of look for it. So I saw that. I really, really appreciate the reviews and sharing the episode. It's really exciting. Um all that helps a ton to get the word out about the show. So if you're enjoying looking into the mirror, please rate and review the show. You can follow me on IG at Twisted Mirror Podcast and on Facebook at Twisted Mirror Pod. Now, hold your loved ones close, look into the twisted mirror, and get into the conclusion of the ones we love. You are now staring into a twisted mirror. I slowly pushed the door open. The house was dark and instinct drove me to leave the lights off until I knew what was going on. Hello? Sonia? Mike? No response. I turned back. Out of a window, I could see old Bob standing there. He had already forgotten about me, it seemed. On a day like this, apathy seemed to be a gift. Maybe Sonia and Mike weren't home because they'd packed up and escaped, I hoped. But that made little sense considering she would have called Fiona or their parents. Suddenly, a faint scraping sound pierced through the silence. My startled reflex was tempered when I remembered they had adopted a little dog just two weeks ago named Gilbert. I had only met him once. And with all the chaos, I had forgotten to even consider that there would be a pet to look out for. I followed the sound to the powder room and opened the door. The little mutt, no more than ten pounds, scurried around the kitchen, whining. After a few frantic laps in the kitchen, the little thing ran around my feet in tight circles. It was clearly in distress, so I knelt down to pet him and quell the whimpering. Shh, I whispered, running my fingers through the fur that felt much like a sheepskin pelt. Shh. He was trembling something I couldn't observe in the darkness until I touched him. Sonia! Mike! I'm here to check on you guys, I said, more firmly this time. Anyone here? 
I ran my hand in one long stroke down Gilbert's back when I felt wetness. Not thin like water, but a viscous texture that matted the hairs together on that spot. My heartbeat quickened as I shot back up to my feet and ran into the powder room, flipping on the light switch. Paint smudges of blood peppered the white floors and walls of the powder room. I ran towards the dog so I could check the source of the bleeding, but he scurried under the couch, afraid of my advance. I bolted up the stairs this time, shouting their names as the possibilities raced in my mind. The silence no longer offering me room for denial. But instead, as I approached their bedroom door, I hit the brakes. I wasn't sure what I would see on the other side, but not knowing was at least some sort of comfort. If Sonia was dead at the hands of Mike, how would I tell Fiona? The only relief I felt was knowing I would bear the burden of finding her sister in her stead. The door to the bedroom was unlatched and it easily pushed open. Even in the dark, I could make out shapes with the aid of street lighting peering through the blinds. There was an ominous stillness in the room. It wasn't the same quiet I felt driving along empty roads on my way to Sonia and Mike's. That was pent-up potential energy ready to burst. This quiet wasn't the before. It was the after. Without diverting my gaze, I reached behind me for a light switch and flicked it, as if that action made the potential situation in actuality. A Schrodinger's massacre of sorts. It all became horrifically real. The blood in my body sank down to my feet when I saw Mike. The way he lay there with his eyes wide open, their pale yellow sheets soaked in glossy crimson blood. All my senses sharpened, and I noticed the metallic scent of blood hanging in the air. I even tasted it the way you would taste a battery when you put your tongue on its pole. Along his neck was a deep, thick gash. A cold sweat erupted along my body. My head spun. My vision dimmed. I leaned against the wall behind me and slid to the floor before my legs completely gave out. I felt my pockets for my phone, but my hands shook uncontrollably. Then I stopped, paring my head in my hands, and took a few deep, anguished breaths. I didn't want to tell Fiona yet. I couldn't. Not until I got myself together. Where was Sonia? Where the fuck was she? That question triggered a semblance of focus in my overstimulated haze. I barely made it back up to my feet and stumbled around the house, 
knocking things over as though she could be hiding under a lamp or in a cupboard. I turned on the lights as I went room to room. This is when the evidence I had missed in the darkness revealed itself. Bloody handprints and drag marks along the walls. Red fingerprints on the powder room door where the dog was placed. But Sonia was nowhere. The scene in front of me pointed to the unimaginable, and yet, the obvious thing. It was exactly what the news had alluded to, and what old Bob warned. Sonia loved Mike dearly. Of that, I had no doubt. She loved him so much that she slit his throat ear to ear. Prickles of fear began to break through the shock. If Sonia did this to Mike, she could do this to me. Was she lurking in some hidden corner I hadn't thought of waiting to slit my throat too? We were cool, cl close even, but I'm not sure I'd make her top list of most beloved relatives. What an odd way to find out if I was. There was only one place I hadn't yet looked. The garage. I grabbed one of Mike's golf clubs and slowly tiptoed to the door that led to the garage. I leaned my back against it to shield myself as I slowly turned the knob and pushed it open. I palmed the wall for the light and turned it on. The garage was orderly, and there weren't many places to hide. One of their cars was gone. Maybe I had this all wrong. Maybe they were attacked and she fled for help. But I remembered what I had seen tonight. Any other night, that would be the case. Any other night, but tonight. I opened the garage and ran out to the driveway, golf club still in my hands. Old Bob was still out there, unmoved by the crumbling of civility around him. Uh, Mike! Mike's dead! I barely eked out. Call the police! I have to get to my family! You shouldn't have gone in there. It's getting worse. It's spreading. I'd stay away from your family if I were you. At least listen to that. What kind of advice was that? That's all I wanted to do. All I wanted was to run home to Fiona and hold her and make sure her and Farron were safe. That's all anyone would want to do during a time of turmoil. I could feel every cell in my body being pulled towards them. Anything else would be unnatural. Abandoning them was not an option. I scoffed at him. If you see the police, tell them what's in there. I have to go home. Sonia's missing. I didn't listen for an answer as I ran back towards my car. I knew Fiona had to be beside herself that I hadn't checked in with her, but I couldn't tell her over the phone the horror I had just witnessed. I couldn't tell her her sister was missing and her brother-in-law was dead. 
that would send her into a spiral when she was all alone with our son. I had to tell her something, though. So I decided on a brief text I would send. On my way home, stay put. I'll fill you in as soon as I get back, but I have to focus on getting back. Don't answer the door to anyone, especially anyone you know. That means family, too. I know it sounds absurd, but trust me, I mean it. I sent it to her, put the cell back in my pocket, and hurried to the car. Then I felt this direct sensation of being followed. The shrubs around me quivered. Who, who's there? I called out. Sonia? I waited a few tense seconds before the little furry creature scurried out and nipped at my feet. I had forgotten about Gilbert, but he had followed me. The chaos seemed to have extended past the earlier checkpoint I had encountered. The block I had parked on before had been relatively quiet, but it had escalated to match the havoc of the rest of the neighborhood. Gil and I jumped into the car and dodged people darting across the street. Projectiles flying and other random acts of chaos. I turned the radio dial, searching for some sort of update. Things were moving quickly, and yet there wasn't a single answer as to why or how. One station gave the regular advice of staying at home. But what good had that done for those in the midst of the violence? If old Bob was right, home was the last place you'd want to be. Unless you were him. Alone and despised. Finally, I stumbled on an AM channel. The reception was poor and that annoying loud buzz that often accompanied AM stations overwhelmed the audio. Someone was being interviewed. The show was called Shore to Shore, but I was unfamiliar with it. Nevertheless, he spoke about considering separating from those you love the most. That early signs were correlating violence among close relations, often starting with the closest relative and moving down the line. While some are theorizing blood relation was the number one factor, others were suggesting it was emotional attachment. Perhaps some sort of virus that attacked those parts of the brain? The man wondered aloud. Was it our own government? Was it an alien invasion? Was some extraterrestrial race trying to use our very humanity to destroy us? The theories were ridiculous, but so was this whole fucking night. I looked over at Gilbert on the passenger side, panting innocently at me while his white fur was splattered with his owner's blood. Sonia loved that dog, and yet she didn't attack it. Or did she? After all, she only had the little guy for two weeks. Maybe he hadn't yet rooted deep enough in that space in our hearts, guts, and brains where the truest love lies. I swatted the thought away again. You don't spontaneously decide to kill the ones you love for no reason, especially the ones you love the most, and especially not en masse like some collective insanity had taken over. I didn't know what the explanation was for what was going on, but there had to be a better one. Maybe something was in the air or water making people violent, and it just so happened 
at this time of night, you happen to be safe at home around the ones you care about. But then, why was old Bob's home a dead zone? Surely someone would have wandered to him eventually. Why did I seem invisible to the violent strangers around me? It had taken longer than usual to get to the canyon road that led to the valley. Violence had spread and some people had seemingly wisened up and decided that leaving would protect them somehow. Were they doing what old Bob suggested and separating themselves from their loved ones in a time of danger? The canyon road, however, was relatively quiet. My phone chimed. A text. I grunted knowing it had to be Fiona, probably panicked. Probably insisting on clarification about my vague text and what was taking me so long. I felt compelled this time to look, though I could barely focus on the dark, winding road through all the racing thoughts and adrenaline flooding my system. Sonia just showed up. She's covered in blood. She said Mike attacked her. I just couldn't leave her out there. She's in shock and I'm freaking out. 911 just has a busy signal. Please be careful. Things are starting to stir outside. I've been calling. Please answer me. I'm getting worried. Reception was always awful in the canyons and I must have missed her calls. I choked the steering wheel as growing rage and helplessness tried to find a release. Fuck! I shouted, rocking back and forth. Little Gil cowered under the front seat. Mike was lying on his back in bed. I didn't see any signs of a struggle in that bedroom. The house was as perfectly organized as Sonia always had it. Aside for the trail of blood leading out of the bedroom and around the house, Mike looked as though he never even had a chance to defend himself. And why hadn't Sonia indicated anything was wrong when they had spoken on the phone? Even if my preliminary analysis of this whole thing was wrong, I couldn't take the risk. Not with my family. I dialed Fiona and pressed my foot down harder on the gas. It wasn't the smartest move at night on the sharply curved roads, but I had to get home quickly. Thank God, why won't you answer your phone? I'm freaking out over here, Fiona said. Oh, thank God, are you all right? I asked frantically. Yes, are you? What's wrong? Is Sonia still there? Yes, of course, she just got here. She's being weird. She won't tell me what happened. It's getting weird. I'm, I'm hearing stuff outside, but I don't want to go out there. Her voice began to drop in and out, and I knew I could lose the call at any second. Fiona, listen to me. Grab Farron and lock yourselves in a room away from Sonia. Don't question me. Just do it. What is going on, DJ? Fiona asked, always unwilling to take blind orders. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but something isn't right. Just please. Something big is happening. You have to trust me. I can't do that to her. She's not okay. Something terrible happened. I, I don't know. Mike snapped. She lowered her voice to a whisper. She has blood all over her. She said he attacked her and she ran out of the house. I can't just run off on her. Fiona, please 
Trust me. Get away from your sister. You're acting insane. I didn't want to break the news. Not like this. But I had to express the severity of what was transpiring. Fiona, listen to me. Mike is dead. I found him lying in his bed. It looked like someone slashed his throat while he was asleep. The doors to the house were all locked. I think she's sick, Fi. You didn't see what I saw out there. People are going after family. Friends. And they are brutal. Listen, I don't know what's going on, but I need to know you'll be safe. Just lock yourself away until I get back. We can sort it all out when I get back there. There was a moment of silence on the line, and I hoped that it meant I was getting through to her. Her next question came in a whisper. Are you? Are you saying it was Sonia? I could hear the sense of betrayal in her voice. Her and Sonia were less than a year apart in age. They did everything together. They weren't just sisters. They were best friends. I might as well have been accusing Fiona of murder. I didn't have the heart to respond honestly. I don't know what I'm saying. I just know something fucking crazy is happening. If she did, then she wasn't in her right mind. But I need you and Farron to be safe, okay? Please just tell me. A car raced past me and abruptly switched into my lane, feet from my bumper. Oh shit! I screamed as I dropped the phone and braced the steering wheel, slamming on the brakes. Another car passed me from the right shoulder and swerved towards the car in front of me. They ran into each other repeatedly, one trying to slam the other against a rock face, the other desperately trying not to get pinned. I did the only thing I could think to do and blared my horn. But just as when I traversed Sonia's neighborhood on foot, I was again invisible. This was a personal battle and my input was irrelevant. The car on the left swerved away and then sharply back into the car in front of me. This time, the attempt was successful and the car broke through some shrubs and down the cliffside. I shouted in horror as the remaining car swerved back into the left lane, losing control and crashing into a rock wall. I pulled over and took in the scene in front of me. The car that had fallen down the cliff had disappeared into the black night. There was no grand explosion like in the movies. The other car's entire front was smashed and steam billowed from the front. Then I remembered Fiona. I searched the floor of my car. When I did find the phone, the call had ended. I stumbled out of my car and towards the one that had crashed into the rock face as I dialed Fiona again. Her voicemail greeted me as I peered in and viewed an unconscious young man. He couldn't have been more than 25. My thoughts splintered between the terrible accident, though perhaps accident was the wrong word for something so clearly intentional, and my wife and child at home who so urgently needed me. I called Fiona again and again. Her call went unanswered. It became clear to me that I had to go home. I had passed so many others who needed my help, and this was no different. I took a few calming breaths, trying to still my shaking hands, 
an after-effect of witnessing and nearly becoming collateral damage to such a violent wreck. Sorry, I muttered to the unconscious killer. Hopefully someone else could help. As I sped away, I dialed 911. At least I could direct someone to the accident. The line was busy. Fucking 911 was busy at almost 2 in the morning on a weeknight. I caught myself just short of throwing my phone at the foot of my passenger seat out of anger. But I had to have it within reach in case Spy called. Despite being shaken by the accident I had just seen, I blazed along the pitch-black sweeping roads. As I neared civilization again, I noticed the same idyllic streets I had driven earlier. The kind where at this time of night, not a peep, outside of a cooing owl, would be heard were just starting to come alive. It, whatever it was, was spreading. I tried Fiona several more times as I neared my home. Lights in the houses along our street switched on in random patterns, their inhabitants one step closer to ruin. There was a loud clap from inside of a nearby house, a man yelling from another home. Each additional disruption building into a familiar crescendo of chaos. Finally, I pulled into my driveway, blocking Sonia's car in. I stormed through my front door. The house was dead quiet. Normally, when these two were together, I'd walk into chatter and laughter over wine or coffee. Fiona? I called out, trying to stifle my panic. My fears were irrational. Sonia would never. But she already had. To the man she loved, hadn't she? When there was no response, my pulse ratcheted up even more than it already had. I ran into the kitchen and then the den where two cups of tea sat idly on the coffee table. Fight! Sonia! I yelled. My desire to convey even a slight air of composure vanished. And at that point, I ran throughout the first level, pushing open doors and finding nothing. My throat swelled as I choked back desperate tears. The image of the reporter being bludgeoned to death on live TV flashed in my mind. Normally, that would have had my entire focus. Something Fiona and I would have discussed somberly as pillow talk but it had barely crossed my mind with all that had transpired since. I grabbed the banister and catapulted my body up the stairs, slipping on the carpet and haphazardly crawling up the remaining steps, unwilling to waste even a moment to get up to my feet. I came upon the first locked door, a spare bathroom, one primarily used by Farron. I pounded on it so forcefully my fists ached. When there was no answer, I slammed into it and then I kicked in the door jamb so that it finally flew open. I could see the shadow of a figure balled up behind the curtain. I flung it open and there was Farron, visibly unharmed, but curled into a ball and trembling. Oh my God. It's, it's okay. It's okay. 
I whispered as I hugged him. He didn't say a word as he trembled in my arms. It's going to be okay, son. Listen to me. Where's mom and auntie? I asked. He wouldn't speak, and that frightened me more than anything I had seen so far that night. My curious, loquacious child had no words. Instead, he pulled his small body away from mine and raised a quivering finger in the direction of our master bedroom. A tidal wave of sickness crested in my gut, and I swallowed back the remnants sharply. Close your eyes, I ordered calmly. You stay here. Daddy will be back, okay? No, he cried. You have to stay, I whimpered. You were a good boy staying in here. Be a good boy for me. I walked briskly out of the bathroom, closing the battered door behind me, and turned the knob to the bedroom, expecting it to resist. But it twisted with the ease I felt when Fiona would go to bed earlier than me and leave the door unlocked, while I wasted another night researching floodlights or zoning laws to win a futile battle with my psycho neighbor. So much time wasted. So much energy spent on some fucking loser. All this fighting some stranger to possibly lose it all to someone I trusted like a sister. The bedroom lights were off, but the light from the master bath streamed out into it, creating a lit path for me to follow. I could see the shadow. It moved in an up-and-down motion, each time followed by a squelching sound. I still get physically sick sometimes when I think about it, and I still hear it in my mind as if I was still standing right there. In many ways, I am, I suppose. Uh, I've never truly been able to leave that room. I don't know if I saw the blood before or after I heard the noises. All those details swirled like red paint dropped into moving water. I think I ran, but I felt like I had been carried into the bathroom. To the sight of Sonia over Fiona's dead body, as she repeatedly smashed one of our heavy brass bedside lamps into what was left of her face. A hollow cavern of red gunk. I let out a sound. I don't know what it was. A cry? A scream? 
I only know I had never made it before, and I haven't since. And it came from a once untapped part of me, as so many things had that day. If you had explained this exact scenario to me, if I was pressed to tell you what I would have done, I couldn't have given a real answer. You have no idea what you would do when faced with something so incapable of comprehension. But Sonia turned to face me, her body shivering, her face covered in pieces of my wife, her beloved sister, and said, I just love her so, so much. I can't take it. I don't really remember what I did. Only flashes. Hands in my face. Teeth sinking into the flesh of my forearms. My eyes burning with tears. I can't even tell you who started it or if it was precipitated by the love Sonia had for me or from a deeply held rage I had been silently curing all my life that ran as far back as when I was bullied as a child. What I can remember is looking up from my seated position against the wall on the bathroom floor and seeing Sonia's dead body lying face up on top of her sister's. She still had her face. Her eyes were bright red with popped blood vessels. Her neck was varying shades of pink, red, and purple. The only thing I could be grateful for was she was covering the sickening sight of my beloved Fiona, my sweet, sweet Fi. I wanted to lie there, let the cops find me and take me away. But I had a son, and obediently, he waited in that bathroom across the hall. I didn't know how much patience a seven-year-old could have before they would crawl out and look, and I couldn't let him see his mother and aunt like this. So, as if summoning the strength I imagine it takes for a paraplegic to attempt his first steps, I pushed my back against the wall and slid up my slick, bloodied hands slipping along the pale, lavender walls. As I stood, I faced the mirror above the sink. Farron, you stay there. Um, I'll be there in a minute. I called out to him. I ripped off the shirt I wore and kicked off my jeans, leaving them to soak in bits of skull, brain, and blood on the bathroom floor. I splashed cold water on my face, 
through my hair and washed my hands as best as I could before throwing on fresh clothes. I allowed myself one sharp bellow into a pillow. One unrestrained yowl of despair. Then I looked up at the mirror. I still saw a disheveled man, but at least not the bloody savage who was in that reflection just minutes before. A person I never wanted my son to lay eyes on. I needed to shield him as much as I could from the ugliness of what was happening. And that meant I had to stuff it all. The fear, the uncertainty, the anguish, the rage deep inside. I tiptoed into the hallway and closed the door quietly behind me. Wearing a false sense of calm like a paper-thin veil and put on a heavy smile as I opened the door. Come here, I said, kneeling over to pick up Farron. He wrapped his arms around me. I'm scared. Where's mommy? Auntie needed mommy's help, so they left together. But mommy put me in the bathroom and told me to lock the door and hide. Auntie Sunny was chasing mommy. Auntie was mad at her, I think. I heard them screaming. Sometimes sisters. I fought a flood of tears. Sometimes they fight, uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't make up or that they don't love each other. I summoned yet a new level of fortitude to hold back the desperate wail I wanted to release. I thought about how Farron would never have a sibling from Fi and me. How, like me, he would now only know a family torn apart by violence. But much, much worse. How everything I ever wanted for him was gone. I carried Farron downstairs and gave him an old iPod of mine he loved to listen to. The thing was ancient, but it held hours of songs. I love that he loved listening to such a diverse range of music at such a young age. I held him facing me with the earbuds in as I switched on the TV. I could hear activity growing outside, but I couldn't bring myself to look. I knew what was out there. I had seen it in Culver City. I saw it growing here in our valley. I needed new information, something I could use to make a plan. I rested my head on top of Farron's as I tried to come up with a strategy. The news didn't have much else to offer other than this plague of domestic disputes was growing. Hell, the conspiracy theorists on AM radio had more to offer. Police and even military were being overwhelmed as states of emergency were being declared all over the country. No one was safe. Hospitals were overrun with violence from family going after patients and workers. 
Two talking heads argued about whether the advice to stay home was wise. One argued that telling people to separate would overwhelm the roads and police and only spread panic and violence. And besides, parents couldn't just leave their children. And what about people who didn't have any means of transportation? The other argued that there was no other option than to stay away from those who you were familiar with until an explanation could be found, and that forcing a curfew was a death sentence for many. There was no logical way to address this. It went against everything that made us human. If that's what this was, humankind en masse exterminating the ones we love, then where did that leave us? What was the point of living if we couldn't safely love again? As I pondered this new reality, I held the person I loved most in my arms. Certain I could never hurt him and hoped at least some of us were immune. The thought of having to separate myself from him was too much, and I cried silent tears over his head. I hugged him a little tighter, wanting to protect him from things I knew I could not. His mother, aunt, and uncle were dead, all killed by those he loved and trusted. His grandparents, who I simply could not bring myself to call yet, could be gone already for all I knew. I wanted to take it all away, the pain, the terror of this world. My chest quivered and quaked as I held back the barrage of emotions and squeezed him tighter and tighter, tighter still. Daddy, you're hoarding me, he said. But I just wanted to squeeze him more. Daddy, ow! I was so overwhelmed. Every muscle in my body clenched with relief. The way it did when you stretched upon waking in the morning. And it felt so good to wrap him in my embrace. Like a boa constrictor, I enveloped him, and he began to disappear into my arms. His cries and gasps disappeared into my chest. Farron writhed and wriggled, but I couldn't stop. I just wanted to crush him with my affection. I wanted to give him all my love until it stopped his heart, until the bones in his chest collapsed with an all-too-satisfying snap. He grew weaker in my arms, and it felt so overwhelmingly euphoric to hug the air out of his body, to love someone to death. But a loud pounding, so loud I thought my door had broken, broke the trance. I released Farron and he fell onto the floor, coughing 
and gasping, his skin a sickly grayish color. Oh my God, I gasped, seeing what I had done in a moment of clarity. Someone pounded the door again. This time, it felt a little farther away, almost as if someone had clasped hands over my ears. All I could think about, all I could focus on, was Farron. My arms wanted to reach for him again. They wanted to envelop him. To crush every solid in his body until he was a puddle. I felt so strongly I needed to love him until there was nothing left of him. The sensation of love suddenly transfigured into destruction and it made perfect sense. But I had a gift many others hadn't had earlier in the evening. Knowledge. Old fucking Bob warned me. I had a modicum of self-awareness. At least until this thing, whatever it was, took complete hold of me. Like wading through chest-deep mud, I marched to the front door and away from the Herculean pull of my son. I made it to the door utterly exhausted. And a strange sense of relief came over me when I saw Greg Ballantyne on the other side. He was now the person I had the least interest in hurting. I skeptically opened the door, but had no energy for hostility toward him. Our battle seemed insignificant now, but I had no idea if he felt the same. He panted. His t-shirt, which was probably a crisp white in its early days, but now was a thread-worn yellowish color, was splattered with blood. I took a step back. He looked me up and down. My cleanup job and fresh clothes must have given him the impression I hadn't yet been wrapped up in the frenzy. Oh God, thank God. Everyone is fucking losing their minds. I know, I muttered, letting him stumble into my foyer. Something is going on, man. I don't know what to do. Tammy. His voice drifted and I knew whose blood was on his shirt. I don't know what happened, but my son, he's locked up in his bedroom. Do you know what's happening? I asked. I saw some riots were on the news before I went to bed, but I woke up to all this fucking noise outside and Tammy wasn't in bed. When I went looking for her, he raised his hands to his forehead and kneaded an attempt to coax out his thoughts. She had a pillow over Wesson's face. He was so blue. The man cried. For all his gun-toting, flag-flying, tough-guy shit, he was reduced to blubbering. None of his prepper shit could have prepared him for this. I tried to stop her, but she was restless, possessed. She wanted to go after Colt, and we wrestled, and then she fell down the stairs. My boy, my, my baby boy is gone, he whimpered. 
He didn't have to tell me his wife was dead. I saw the same look in his eyes that I saw in the mirror after I strangled Sonia to death. Listen to me. I grabbed his shoulders and forced eye contact. Something is happening. No shit, he said. No, I mean something we can't explain. People are going after the people they love most. I know it sounds crazy, but no. He sharply interrupted. It makes perfect sense. Tammy would never hurt our boys. She would have died before that. The government, they've been doing this shit to us. I bet it's some experiment gone bad. Greg was also into conspiracy theories. Frankly, I didn't know why everything was happening, so I was in no place to argue. And besides, if it did help him understand, so be it. Where's Colt? I asked. Greg looked at me quizzically, and I could see the cogs twirling in his head as he made sense of my theory. He, um, uh, I ran up to him, but then, fuck. What? What is it? I think I hit him. I don't know. I can't remember. I get it. Trust me. I understand. He locked himself up in the safe room, and I think I was coming in there to get you to help me get him out. Oh, fuck. Like me, Greg had opened himself to what was happening, and that sliver of self-awareness allowed for an opening, a small ray of light that could peer through the fog of whatever was taking over. He chuckled through the tears. <laughs> Son of a bitch, I fucking hate your guts. And yet, I have never felt less hostile to you than right now. Likewise, I replied wryly. You do understand what this means? Greg asked. Two gunshots fired just outside my house and we both jumped. Greg reached for his waistband, where he had tucked in a pistol, of course, and peeked through my shades. Jesus, fuck! Brett McMillan's wife just fucking shot him. Looks like he was chasing her with something. The wails of anguish rang through my living room. It occurred to me that among the dead, there wouldn't only be people like Fiona and the anchorwoman, killed by crazed loved ones who had snapped, but people like Brett McMillan, who had to be killed by the ones they loved in self-defense. Or maybe the sickness struck them both at the same time, and then it became, who won the battle of love? I raced towards the door and yanked it open, but Greg stopped me with a firm hand. This is moving fast and we have to think about our own. Another shot rang out, and I looked out into the street just in time to see Sandra McMillan's body drop to the ground. Suicide. Greg grabbed my arm. Civilization has fallen apart. What the fuck holds us all together when we murder the ones we care about the most? I nodded and dropped back a few steps. Where's your kid? He asked. I winced, recalling what could have happened had Greg not pounded on my door. The mere thought of my son and the intense love I had for him began to immediately manifest itself as aggression. I turned to where I'd left him on the floor, and he was gone. I don't know, I, I think he ran into the bathroom upstairs. That's where I found him before. 
You too, huh? I nodded. Fiona's dead. Her sister did it. But I had to stop her sister, so... I choked up. Do you feel it? He asked. I nodded. Like a wave that had receded and was once again cresting, I could feel the urge to find Farron. To smother him. Just at the mere mention of his name. Me too. I think there's only one thing we can do right now. What's that? I asked, feeling every muscle in my arms tremble with aggressive energy. You need to take Colt. And I need to take Farron. What? No! I understood his logic. We didn't have to express how much we couldn't stand each other's kids. But there was still a fatherly instinct inside of me, no matter how warped. I'd rather kill Farron than hand him over to my worst enemy. We will do what everyone else is out there doing to them. It's only a matter of time. At least until they figure out how to stop it. We don't have time to waste. We need to get away from our kids. But they need someone to watch out for them. I paced in a tight circle. The urge was getting stronger and my hand trembled as I ran it through my hair. We don't have time, PJ. It's DJ, I snapped. Whatever. He marched up to me to look me in the eyes. Whatever you are feeling, you have to go against it. Our instincts are all jumbled up. All I want to do right now, he ripped the gun from his waistband and pointed it up, is slam this into Colt's fucking skull and make it all go away. He bared his teeth like a ferocious dog. I felt genuine fear for that boy. Through it, I understood that my urge to stay with Farron, instead of letting him have his best chance of survival with that asshole, was just an extension of this mental coup. In some warped way, I had a stronger urge to save that nightmare of a child than my own. Whatever my new instincts were trying to tell me, the best thing I could do for my son the greatest act of love I could show him was to leave him with my greatest enemy. The person I would not shed a tear for if he fell off a cliff. Greg felt the same way about Farron as I did about Colt. Somehow, this mutual hatred was working in our favor. Okay. I grunted. Greg jumped into action quickly. My garage is stocked with supplies. You take what you need and get out of here. Don't tell me where. Just honk when you leave so I know I can go back in there myself and get supplies. We'll touch base tomorrow, but under no circumstances can we tell the other where we are. All right, I just need to say goodbye. He latched onto my shoulder. No, you can't. I motioned to resist, but he gave me a knowing, even sympathetic look, and I understood. I softened my body. I felt the manipulation inside of me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to say goodbye before handing him over to safety, 
or if this was my own brain tricking me into getting hands on him. Maybe both. Just tell him. I choked up. I will. You do the same. We'll get our sons back. Take care of the little jerk, will ya? Yeah, man, of course, I said. I stepped towards the door. One more thing. Empty your gun out. His eyes flared. That was like me telling him to cut off his dick. Your son isn't safe if you could just walk over to your house and shoot him or bash his skull in. Everything is backwards now. That gun isn't protection any longer. It's a tool to kill the person you love most in the world. He winced as each bullet emptied onto the floor. I stuck my hand out, and he slammed the gun down into my palm. I threw it as far as I could into the darkness. His eyes widened the way they did before one of our epic arguments. I'm certain there's plenty more where that came from, I told him. In a night full of the hardest things I had ever done, the hardest of them all was to walk away from my son. Every single living cell in my body fought to turn around, to hug him and tell him I love him, to squeeze the life out of him. Love and death were now all wrapped into one package. Despite that, every instinct I had was overrode by one, that my son would live to see me go into my grave someday, not the other way around. I focused on that one truth, filtering out the slowly growing urge to do the unimaginable. But I knew I could only hold on to it for so long. So began the frenzied beginning of the end. It has been almost a year now. There's no cure. Systems have broken down. We lost millions that first night. And then many more millions after that. Think about it. If you saw the world erupting into violence and the news told you to leave your wife, husband, child, mother, father, sister, brother, whoever immediately, and then never look back, would you? So many didn't. And so many died. It all happened so fast. It smells of dead bodies in the cities. The president was assassinated by his own child the morning after it all started. He refused to separate from his family as Secret Service tried to put him into hiding, and she bit right into his neck and ripped out his jugular as he carried her. He bled out in minutes. We have... So many orphans. Children whose parents were murdered and those who abandoned them in a final act of love. You dog lovers are probably wondering about Gil, Sonia's dog. To be honest, I left him behind without a second thought, but it does turn out 
they aren't immune to our love aggression. So stray dogs, cats, and children now crowd our streets and packed FEMA centers. This is our Black Plague, but much, much worse. There is a theory behind it just starting to take shape. Have you ever heard of cuteness aggression? You know, when you see something so endearing and adorable, you just want to squeeze it or crush it. They think those parts of the brain are changing in us, but we aren't even close to understanding why. Now, we know most of the injuries are close contact, choking, biting, crushing, bludgeoning, stabbing. All those cute aggression instincts to get your hands on and destroy the object of your affection, manifesting to the highest and most vicious degree. Maybe it's a pathogen. Maybe our brains have been hijacked by aliens. The world is in such shambles, and we are now so empty and lost as a species. It could be a long time before we have it figured out. You don't realize how potent a tool love is. It makes everything possible. And where there is a void, we seek it out even more. So that even co-workers who try to work together, so starved of that most basic yet necessary human emotion, cling to each other. And then the cycle starts again. So needless to say, it has complicated things. It has made progress very slow, as the scientists we have left must work in isolation with an already battered infrastructure. People have started to cluster into small communities of strangers because it's the only way to stay safe and pool resources. There's no socializing, no getting to know one another. We don't even use eye contact. We can't risk forming close bonds. I found the one we're in a few weeks after everyone went nuts and we've been there since. They tried to separate Colt and me, but I told him I made a promise to his father who had my son and that I needed to stay with him. As callous as it made me seem, I explained I would never love that feral kid, that I could hardly stand the sight of him. When they saw him on the floor kicking and screaming bloody hell, it didn't take much convincing. Occasionally, a secret affair comes to light when we find a body. Romeo and Juliet sneak off in secret, and then love conquers all, and one of them kills the other. Then, there are people who heeded the warnings at first, but growing tired of the separation, either decide to take the risk or begin to deny that this whole thing is even real. Especially considering we can't seem to get solid answers about the disease. Of course, these family reunions start with much promise and ultimately end in blood. The first night and weeks after all this went down, when I lost Phi, those were the obvious, most acute cases. They still happen, but now there's a spectrum, and sometimes that makes it more insidious. Sometimes, like what happened to me and Greg, 
you can feel the pull come on slowly. So people convince themselves they can fight it, that they can fight love, but it inevitably takes over and kills. This new world is a special type of hell. There is no laughter, no fun, no intimacy. We can't even have fucking pets. We are raising a generation of unloved children. We do not hug. We do not sympathize. We are all too terrified that a shared joke, a moment of fondness, even a touch, could trigger what used to be the most wonderful thing about being human, our interconnectedness. That intangible condition we call love. No two cases are the same, and yet they are all linked by this invisible thread. A deep connection with another human. A fondness. A longing to be by their side. We have changed as a species. We are just starting to see the effects. Suicides are a mundane occurrence. Some people can't go on like this. I wish I could say I stopped loving Farron so that he could be safe from me. But just thinking about him, I can feel that low-lying hunger to extinguish his life creeping in. So, I'm still stuck with Colt. At first, he was impossible. He fought me at every fucking opportunity. Every interaction resulted in a tantrum. He had no respect for me as an elder. He called me all the names his father called me behind my back. I, I get it. This whole thing is tough as an adult, but for a child, it has to be impossible to process. Over the last few months, however, things have shifted. He's opening up to me, and if I do say so myself, I, I think I'm rubbing off on him. He's not as loud or brash as he once was. He's actually a sweet kid when his dad's hyper-masculine bullshit isn't the only thing he's exposed to. We've even shared some really good laughs in secret, which are hard to come by in a world where love is dangerous. Greg and I lost communication a few weeks ago. There's no stable infrastructure for cell phones anymore. We all just try every day and hope for a call to go through. Last I heard, Farron was doing about okay as any kid in his situation could. It seemed like Greg was taking good care of him and teaching him how to hunt and fish in the woods where they've camped. It's funny how that worked out. Me bringing out the softer side of Colt. Greg perhaps equipping Farron with a little more ruggedness and self-sufficiency than I could. It's interesting what's revealed when the intensity of our love is exposed. I had met a woman on the road who said her husband left in the middle of the night to kill their neighbor. They had been having an affair she didn't know about, and he apparently loved his mistress more than her. Then there was a woman who had a husband and five kids, and she killed all of them in their sleep but one. 
What a blessing and a curse for that kid to learn his mother didn't love him. Some people were taken completely by surprise by someone they didn't even know was madly in love with them. Sociopaths don't have to worry about losing control now. They are far more measured than those of us who love deeply. This is a world for old bobs now. I'm not sure we can ever defeat this without a miracle cure. Containment takes away everything that makes us human. Everything that drives us to wake up in the morning. The greatest act of love is now abandonment. Love is pain. Love is loneliness. Love is death. Hope is the only thing we have left. The only thing I cling to. The only reason I haven't grabbed a rope and hung myself from a desolate tree out in the forest is that I have one job now. And that's to take care of Colt until the day I pray we can reunite with our families. Despite all I have said, I, I still hold on to that belief. We all do. It's all we have. Lately, I have been uh, tucking Colt into bed every night. Greg never read him bedtime stories, so he begs me to. Sometimes he cries out for his dad at night, and I have no choice but to comfort him. I assure Colt that someday he'll see his dad again. When I do, I'm assuring myself as well. Because the day he can see his dad is the day I can hug my precious son again. I'll admit, I have grown fond of Colt. There's something about being wholly responsible for someone that plants a seed in you. Like that unruly dog you adopt at the shelter that one day lovingly nuzzles its head in your lap. Colt's playing with the toy truck I found him and seems content despite all that he's been through. Kids are adaptable and for that I am grateful. I hope it means Farron is still doing well too. He looks so adorable right now. Making those little realistic truck noises as he pushes it around. He loves that little thing. Small pleasures like that are hard to come by now and it warms my heart to see him experiencing an innocent childhood moment. Colt is actually a pretty cute kid. He has these cherubic little cheeks and golden ringlets that bounce along his head. I could just pinch his cheeks. I could just bite him. I could just squeeze his pudgy arms until my fingernails rip into his skin. I could just tear him to fucking pieces. Maybe this would be a comfort to hold him tight, grab his cheeks, and press until I rip them clean off his face. It would be painful for a little bit, but then the pain would stop and he would never have to worry again. Isn't that the truly selfless thing to do? I feel my hands growing tight, my fingers trembling, my jaw clenching as they seek a release. I've always been a sensitive guy. 
prone to caring for others. Greg saw that as a weakness, but caring about people? Showing that you love them is not a fault. We all took it for granted. Now that it's gone, we would do anything to have it back. So, I guess you could say I've grown to love Colt during our year together. And as the saying goes, sometimes we hurt the ones we love. Boom, 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 boom,